Today we're going to be starting a new series, Strangers in a Strange Land. And this is a strange series. Uh, it, was, it was a strange one to plan because let, let me tell you how this is all going to unfold. So this week is actually Refugee Sunday. And then next week is actually the Sunday um, that, that we remember the persecuted church or that we think about the persecuted church. And then the next Sunday is Thanksgiving. So we've got refugees, persecuted church, Thanksgiving. And so, you know, it's going to be an interesting month. But honestly, as I was, as I was preparing and I was thinking about this month, um, the book of James came to me. And I, it's amazing how well the book of James fits with, with where we're going this month. And so I'm really excited. Actually, I think I talked um, last week about the prayer gathering we had um, here in the sanctuary that weekend. And that weekend, I actually, that night as we were praying, I just was reading through the book of James and just praying through the scripture of the book of James. And I just want to say that it would probably be a good thing for every single one of us to just take the time over the next few weeks to be reading through the book of James and praying along with it. There is some really good stuff for where we've been and where we're at and just some really good stuff for us as we walk through life in the book of James. So that, that's kind of a, a right away thing that, that I, I would just ask you to do is over the next month, over the next week, be reading through the book of James. Read what it says Pray those prayers. I mean, it was, it was just a really powerful time for me. But, um, but so we're, we're gonna start today with um, Refugee Sunday and, and we'll talk a little bit about refugees. That's not the whole focus of what we're doing, but today I wanna talk about, um, it, it, we're gonna start with the book of James and, and how it calls us to treat those around us. Not just refugees, but those around us that are living in the margins, those around us that are struggling, those around us that maybe are different. And so we're starting Strangers in a Strange Land um, with the book of James. So I want to give you a little um, context of the book of James, just so you kind of know where we're at and you know what this writing was all about. So the book of James was written to Jewish Christians in the first century. Jewish Christians. So this is after Jesus. Most people date the book of James towards the end of the first century. And so this is after Jesus' time, and there are Jewish Christians who are spread out all over the place. They're scattered. And so James is writing to these Jewish Christians who are scattered all around. They're kind of refugees, or they're strangers in a strange land. And so um, th this took place in the first century, and those Jewish Christians, because of their Jewish roots, they had very different um, customs, they had very different um, dietary practices, they, they, they were very different than the people around them in the lands that they lived. And so they were set apart from everyone else. They were kind of strangers, oddballs, you could say. Some of them, if they had money, maybe had the opportunity to buy citizenship, but most of them were too poor to be able to afford that. And so these Jewish Christians that James is writing to were living in a place where it was not their home and they, were, they did not have the protection of citizenship or the rights of citizens. And so they were really just out of place. 
They, they weren't protected. They didn't have rights. In fact, in that society, that most of them were, were fairly poor. And in that society, it was a society where the rich often exploited the poor. And so the rich got richer by stealing from the poor, both through taxation, through stealing, through all of these things. And so these people are living, they are strangers in a land that was not their own. And so that's where we start today. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt just completely out of place? Have you ever felt like you were just all on your own and that, I mean, just totally uncomfortable with your surroundings? Have you ever felt like a stranger in a strange land? Uh, two quick stories. When I was in high school, um, I played basketball for Hume Fogg. That's, that's not an accomplishment to play basketball for Hume Fogg. We were a small school. We didn't even have a full-size gym in our school. But I played basketball for Hume Fogg. And one of my years, um, I was the only white person on my basketball team. But since we were a smaller school in the middle of downtown Nashville, we played a lot of schools out in the boonies of Tennessee. And so being the only white guy on the basketball team and traveling out to some of the outskirts of Tennessee where, there, where, where everybody was white, we sometimes felt like strangers in a strange land. I'm just going to be honest with you. There were games that we went and played and we felt very uncomfortable at the way that my teammates were treated, at the way that people looked at us. We felt like we were completely out of place. Last night, we had a party at, um, at my in-law's house um, out in Milford, and, and it, was a, it was a class party. And that, it's something we do every year, it's a really fun event. And one of the things that we don't do every year, but every once in a while, and, and I'm fascinated with this, my in-laws live up on a hill, and down at the bottom of the hill is a creek. And that creek, if you follow it down, leads to a really cool tunnel that goes all the way under 275 and comes out the other side. I mean, we're talking about a pretty long tunnel to the point that even in the middle of the day, if you walk into the middle of that tunnel, all you can see is a speck of light on either side. It is completely dark in the middle of it. So there's this cool tunnel. I love it. I've always enjoyed going down there. And so yesterday, we had this party, and our class parties, when we have them, there are just kids running everywhere. I mean, dozens of kids running around. And so I walk outside. I've been watching football. I've been trying to do my thing, which is sit there and just watch football and enjoy, you know. And I, but I walk outside, and Jason Morris is standing there, and Megan says, hey, do you want to go down to the tunnel with all the kids and Jason? And I thought, yeah, why wouldn't I want to go down to the tunnel with all of these kids? And so, and Jason was going to be on his own, and he could have handled it because he's amazing. But, but I was like, yeah, I'll go with him. And so we had, it was Jason and I and probably like 18 or 19 children, all different ages, some pretty young ones, some pretty small ones. And this is not like a sidewalk down to the creek, and it's not like there's a sidewalk along the creek. I mean, this is some terrain that's not real easy to get through, and it's been raining quite a bit over the last few weeks. So we started off on our trek down the hill. Kids are all excited. Oh, we're going down to the creek. We're going to see the tunnel. It's great. I'm kind of excited, but at the same time kind of nervous because there's a lot of kids. And we get down there, and we get into the creek, and I have this thought. 
I mean, it's probably, I don't know what time it was, maybe 6.30 at this point, and I have this thought. We probably should have brought some flashlights because it's starting to get a little bit darker. And we got all these kids, and Jason and I, and we're down in this, I mean, we're in the creek at this point, but hey, too late now, we're not turning back. We, we each had our cell phone, which was all we had with us, so we had a flashlight on that. So we start journeying through the creek, and it's going pretty slow because the rocks are, some of them are slippery, kids are slipping, they're falling in the water, it's going really well. By the way, I'm sorry, parents, if your kids came home all muddy, so did I. But, but we journeyed through the creek, and then we ended up going, you know, it took a lot longer than we planned, because there are parts of the creek that you can't walk through without getting wet, so we had to go up back onto the land, across, and then came down at the tunnel. And I'm telling you, this tunnel is a really cool place. My wife is scared to go down to the tunnel to this day. She's a grown woman. It's not like a real, like, simple, I mean, it is a big tunnel that's really interesting, and so we've got all of these kids, we finally make it to the tunnel, and it's getting pretty dark, and we start into this tunnel, and it is pitch black, and all we have is two small phones with small lights, and all of a sudden, some of the kids started to get a little bit antsy about walking into this dark tunnel, and as we started to get in, they, they started to come back and say, we're scared. We want to go back. Can we leave? And, and so we did our very best. We, oh, you know, hop on my back, walk with me, I'll hold your hand. And so we walked through the tunnel. But I'll tell you what, I remember those days. As an adult, it didn't bother me one bit to be in that dark tunnel. I know that it's okay. I know that it's safe. But I remember the days when if I were in that situation, I would have felt really out of place and terrified. And so we got through the tunnel amazingly and we got back and as far as we know, all the kids made it back. We haven't heard any complaints. So any that didn't, obviously, they weren't too worried about it. But we got back finally. I mean, it was pitch black. It was, I was covered in sweat and mud. It was just, it was a great idea from the beginning. Like we probably should have started earlier. But I, I can remember when I was a kid, situations like that, and I just think of these little guys and girls that were sitting there in the middle of the dark in a tunnel that was a little cold and creepy, and they probably felt out of place. They probably felt lost. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever just felt like you were out of place? Well, James is writing to the scattered church. He's writing to the scattered Jewish Christians that are out of place, that are strangers in a strange land. And, and so as we start this series, I think it's important for us to make a distinction here. I don't think that that's us today as the church. Honestly, I don't think that we are living as refugees in this land. We, most of us have it pretty good, don't we? We've got nice houses. Our lives look very similar to the people next to us. It's not like we are totally out of place and out of sorts. But the world we live in today, the society we live in today, I believe is very similar to the society that James was writing into. And I believe that even though we aren't the ones that feel like we're lost and we're in a tunnel, even though our lives are fairly comfortable, I believe that there are people walking by you every day that maybe feel lost, that maybe 
feel like they're strangers in a strange land. A pretty hot topic over the past year or two has been the refugees and immigration. And I'm not going to get super political as, as far as that stuff, but I want you to know that we are called to be a people of hope and light to the people around us, regardless of whether they are in great shape or whether they are strangers in a strange land that are lost, whether they are like those kids that are standing in that tunnel saying, I don't know what to do. We are called to be a light to those people. And so, so we're going to start and we're going to look into James chapter 1. Verses 26 to 27, and it starts off pretty hard here, so let's go. It says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. That's harsh, isn't it? That's harsh. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James just, I mean, it, this is the big guns. This is a tough one for us. Let's be honest. This is a tough one. This first verse that I read, those who consider themselves religious but do not keep a tight rein on their tongue are missing it. That's harsh, isn't it? What does that mean? What does it mean to keep a tight rein on your tongue? Why is James saying that? In James 3, 9 through 10, he says this. With the tongue, we praise the Lord our Father, and with it, we curse human beings who were made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. It is really easy for us to come and stand in a sanctuary and praise God and, and say all sorts of things of praise and say, oh God, I love you and I believe in you. But James says, if you do that, but you turn around and you curse the people around you with your tongue, it's worthless. You're missing it. And so really what James is saying is that this all revolves around, this keeping a tight rein on our tongue revolves around the way that we talk about and treat those around us. If you remember back to last week and to the last series, if you love me, you will what? Feed my sheep. Jesus is pretty clear that our love for God is evidenced by our love for others, that if we really love God... We will love those around us. And so what James is saying here is that if you tell God that you love him, if you say, God, I love you, but you don't love the people around you and you talk poorly about them and you, whatever it is, you're missing it. You have to keep a tight rein on your, trunk, on your tongue. I think one of our biggest problems that we have in the church is controlling our tongues. It's too easy to speak poorly about somebody else. It's too easy to compartmentalize people, to look at people as less than, and to talk about them as if they are not created by God. And so as we talk about immigration, as we talk about the refugee issue, I don't get real political, but I'm going to get political right now. Regardless of where you find yourself on those issues, 
if the way you speak about it and the way that your tongue reacts to that is not holy and pleasing to God, if there is hatred or, or, or if your speech is to tear down, you're missing it. You have to keep a tight rein on your tongue. Regardless of what you think, we can disagree, but we cannot be hateful. We have to be loving and build each other up. It goes on in verse 27, and it says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world around you. So this is really good stuff because we talked about the way that we love God should be evidenced by the way that we treat others. And sometimes I believe there are many in our, excuse me, in our world, in our society, they're like, hey, I give to others. I love others. And that is a part of it. If we are going to love God and we are going to worship God, that should lead us to care for those that are in need. I'm just going to start, I'm just going to ask you a question right now. Is there anybody in your life that you are really caring for and pouring into and helping? And let me ask you another question that can come alongside that. Is there anybody in your life that needs your love and your support that maybe you're not passing it along to? If you, if you want to worship God, you have to love others. You have to care for those in need. And, and so caring for those in need, orphans, widows, refugees, those that are struggling, the poor, those that feel out of place, caring for those in need is true worship. Faith that doesn't translate to caring for those in need is not faith at all. Let me say that again. Faith that doesn't translate to caring for those in need is not real faith at all. It's easy to say, I love God. But if we're not living it out by loving others, by loving those in different spots than us, we're missing it. Going on, it says, it's not where it stops. It doesn't stop with, with that love for others. It goes on, it says, and keep yourself pure from the things in the world around you that will ruin you. And so we see two sides of this. We see that real faith is loving others, taking care of others, helping those in need, but it's also keeping yourself pure. And I see this all the time in our disagreements about political things and our disagreements about the way that we treat each other. Some people are like, we gotta love them, we gotta do this. But they're missing the purity part of this. And others are like, we got to stay pure, but they don't associate with others, and they're missing the loving and reaching out thing. We are called to love others and to stay pure. So faith that doesn't translate to Christ-likeness is not faith at all. So faith that doesn't translate to loving those in need is not faith at all, and faith that doesn't translate to purity is not faith at all. We are called to both. I had a friend and he would always say this. Um, he, he, would, he had this way of saying this and I love this. So, so I'll, I'll just put it into action here. It's all about helping the poor. Yes. It's all about being pure. Yes. Well, which is it? Yes. 
That's what it is. It's both. We are called to love others and we are called to keep ourselves pure. The next 13 verses go on and they teach us how to treat those around us. So we're going to go into chapter 2 now. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich that are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And, and so James goes on, and, and in this, these 13 verses, I, I want to show you how this plays out. He starts with a very specific situation. This situation, if a man comes into your, into your presence, and he's, he's wealthy, and he's got nice things, and you show preference to him over somebody who has little or nothing, you're missing it. He starts with this very specific situation. And this is a very interesting thing for James to write because honestly, in the culture that they were living in, it was totally normal to treat people differently based on their wealth. It was totally normal, totally acceptable. In fact, it was the way you were supposed to do it that if a rich person came in with gold rings and nice robes, they get the best seat. They lived in an honor and a shame culture. And if somebody poor came in, you were supposed to treat them that way. You were supposed to put them in their place. And James writes and says, that can't be the way that it goes. Let me ask you a question. Is our culture different than that? Do we live in a different culture than that culture in the first century where they treat some better than others and cast others away? Is our culture different? I was thinking about this. I, I like to fly. I like to get on planes. But when you fly, there's the, there's the main cabin, and then there's first class. Have you ever noticed that there's a curtain that separates the two? Like, not just a wall, but there's a little curtain that they're supposed to close so that, so that they don't even have to see you people back there. And they're first class, you know? Like, I've never flown first class. Have any of you flown first class? Oh, I don't, no, I don't want to call you out. That's, it's cool. Hopefully you have. That's, it looks pretty cool up there. But it's funny to me that we have this curtain that separates. You guys have all seen it in movies. Maybe you've seen it in real life where you go somewhere and, and there's, there's no room in this restaurant or they don't have a table for you, but somebody else comes in. Woo, we got a table right up front here. We do live in a society that treats people differently based on where they are financially or whether they're famous or whether we do live in a, in a society that's like this first century society. But James is telling us that if as Christians we have to be different, we can't treat people the same way that those people did. We can't treat people based on their wealth or their status or what they have. We are called to treat everybody the same 
Here's the thing, Jesus didn't come to the palace. Jesus didn't come to the rich and the wealthy. Jesus came where? In a stable, to shepherds and wise men. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love the rich, but I'm telling you that Jesus came for all men and women alike. There's not a priority. There's not a scale. We are to love all people the same. And so whether someone's rich, whether someone's poor, whether someone's famous, whether nobody knows their name, whether someone has it all together, or whether someone's a total mess, God calls us to love them the same. Who falls into that category for us? Who falls into that category? Just think about that in your own mind. Who is it in your life that falls into that category of somebody that's different, somebody that maybe it's easy to look past or to stay away from? Maybe it is those that are poor. Maybe you walk down the street and you see a group of people that doesn't look so nice on one side and you see people that look really nice on the other and I'm going on this side. Maybe it's those that that struggle emotionally. I'll tell you what, we have people come into the church all of the time that are struggling and some of them look pretty rough. I believe that God calls us to love those people as much as God calls me to love any of you. And I love all of you, I do. But I believe God calls us to love everyone. Maybe it's those that are just different than you. Maybe people that have different beliefs. Maybe it's people that come from other cultures. Every morning I'd take the boys up to the bus stop. And and in our neighborhood, you know, at the bus stop there's four or five of us parents that are all fairly similar. We all, we all speak the same language, do the same things, but there's one set that comes to the bus stop that don't look like the rest of us, and they don't speak good English, and they don't, they, they don't, they don't fit with the rest. And you know what? What I've noticed is that it's really easy to walk up there and to talk to the people that you have so much in common with. But too often I see one person standing by themselves 10 feet away and being left out. And so over the past couple months, I've made it a point to talk to that person and I've gotten to know that person a little bit better and gotten to know their story. I believe that God wants us all to love each other and I believe that if we are standing at a bus stop or we're walking down a street or we're sitting in a sanctuary and there's two people that are different and one is more like us and one is not and we show preferential treatment to the one that's like us or we stay away from the other, we're missing it. James says we are called to treat everyone the same way. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, listen, this is harsh again. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you commit adultery but do, but do not commit murder... You have become, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. 
And so James says, if you remember um, the scripture, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, but what's the second half of it? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the theme in James' teaching, that we're really good at loving God, but are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? They're two sides, and you have to have both of them. And James goes so far here to say that if you are not loving your neighbor, if you are showing favoritism, if you are avoiding somebody, if you are treating someone poorly because of their status, you are guilty of breaking the law. He even goes as far as saying you are just as guilty of breaking the law as people who murder others or commit adultery. That's a big deal, isn't it? This is important stuff. I want you to understand it's important what we're talking about today, the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat the marginalized, the way that we treat people that are different than us is just as important as not killing each other as not doing other things in the law. And so James says, if you're going to love God with everything you have, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. That leads us to the last two verses, and, and I love these verses. In verse 12, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs judgment. Listen to that again. Speak and act. This is practical stuff for you. This is what you can walk away from here and think about. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Sometimes we speak and act like those who are going to be judged by the legalistic law. By the law that if you mess up, they're going to get you. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. When, when we struggle, when we look at others, when we, when we show favoritism, when we look at somebody and we look at them as different or, or less than, the truth is what we're doing is we're thinking that we're perfect, that we're better than everyone else. But this says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because the truth of the matter is, we are all lawbreakers. We all blow it. None of us deserve the grace and the love that God has given us. And so we cannot look at someone else and say, sorry, it's not for you, it's only for me because we all have been given grace we all have been given love that we do not deserve. And so when you speak to others, when you act, the way that you treat others should be informed by your understanding that God's grace has been freely given to you and that you didn't deserve it. This was the problem with the Pharisees. Another kind of political topic that, uh, that's pretty been, been pretty huge over the last couple years is the topic of privilege. You've probably heard a lot about privilege. In fact, I watched a video yesterday about it. And, and listen, I just want to start by saying I'm pretty privileged. I am. I grew up in a great place with great parents. I've never had to worry about the things around me. But more than that, I'm privileged to serve a God that looks at me in my imperfection, in my struggle. It loves me. 
and gives me grace and gives me life. I'm privileged. And regardless of what you think about privilege or any of that stuff, I want you to understand we are all privileged to serve a God that graces us when we mess up. And so if we're going to serve a God that gives us the privilege, we need to live like we serve a God that passes out that privilege. And when we see the people next to us, we need to want to give them that same grace and that same privilege Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And so on this Refugee Sunday, if I could put it a certain way, I would say this. Live as refugees that have been loved and given a chance, have been given life because that's, we are all there. Live as refugees in the way that you treat others. Live as, as if you were in their spot. But God gave you life and peace. And if we'll live that way, we'll look at others differently. When we start to look at ourselves as better than, when we start to look at ourselves as good enough, it's easy to cast others out. But when we understand that God has given all of us grace and life that we didn't deserve, we will pass that on to others. If we all live as those who have been graced, we will be a means of grace for others. So what does this mean for us on Refugee Sunday? I don't know if you have much contact with refugees I don't know if you have much interaction with that situation, but I do know this. Every day as you walk around, there are people walking around next to you that are marginalized, that are lost, that feel like they have no help, that they're broken, that they're, they're all on their own. Whether it's a refugee, whether it's somebody that's poor, whether it's somebody that's just struggling in life, all of us know people and have people in our lives that are in that spot. If we're going to follow God's law, if we're going to come in here and worship and say, God, we love you, it has to lead us to be graceful and loving to those around us. And so I want you to think about this. Is there anybody in your life that maybe you've passed by? Is there anybody in your life that maybe you've treated differently because they were different? Is there anybody that you're not giving the grace and the love that God has given you to them? If that's the case, God calls us to be a people of grace. God calls us the graced, the people that have been given grace, to then be a conduit of grace to those around us. I think about that tunnel and I think about these kids and I think I remember when I was in their spot, I remember being in dark places and thinking, I don't know what to do, I'm all alone. As an adult that's walking alongside them, I have the opportunity to ease their fears and to lead them to safety and to take care of them. And in the same way, the people that are walking next to us each and every day that are lost, that feel out of place, that feel like strangers in a strange land, we have the opportunity to be pointing to God's hope and God's light. And so, something to take away this week. Number one, we need to be praying 
We need to be praying that God would open our eyes to the people around us that need his grace and love, and we need to be praying that God will give us a heart that will reach out to them. But the second thing, we all have these people around us. It may be someone at your work that people don't talk to. It may be someone at your school that, is, that seems like they're being left out. It may be someone in your life that just seems like they're totally out of place. It may be someone from a different place that doesn't speak like you or look like you. It, it may be a refugee. This week, if there's someone like that in your life, I want you to practice being graceful, being loving, talking to them, being a light to those in your life. We're going to watch a video here in a second, and then um, Pastor Dale's going to come. But, but I just want to ask you, as we close the service today, that, that as you think about this topic of how we treat others, if you feel like there's somebody in your life that you need to treat a little bit differently, if you feel like you haven't represented your love for God by loving others, I want to ask you to start praying for those people. Dale's going to come up after the video, and he's going to pray, and you're invited to come pray if you want to, and then we're going to sing a song. But as you pray, pray that God will reveal those people in your life that, that may be on the margins, and that you can be a conduit of grace and peace. Let's watch the video.